0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. You really got to speak to people's
1: heart and and even tell a compelling story that people feel they want to be a part of if you want to enlist anybody in the social change we thought about our audiences and who they were and what kind of thing we could do that would make them feel empowered instead of feeling guilty. We got into all kinds of new audience segments and that led to several of these big nice brands making commitments to change because it was a it was much much more respectful and um, connected kind of campaign.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Jonah Sachs. Jonah is an internationally recognized storyteller, author, and designer. He's the co-founder and creative director of Free Range Studios, an advertising and marketing firm that specializes in non-profits and socially responsible businesses. Jonah has helped hundreds of social brands and causes break through the media din with campaigns built on sound storytelling strategies. His book Story Wars uses case studies to show values-driven stories, which Jonah believes would revolutionize marketing. Thank you very much, Jonah, for taking the time to speak to us for inspiring social entrepreneurs. So this is a podcast for social entrepreneurs and change makers of various kinds. They're aspiring people of various stages of development on their change-making journey, I suppose. So I'd like to just talk is a little bit about your experience, really, and see any lessons for change-makers who want to get their stories out there. Dearly, they have good stories to tell. A good place to start, maybe, Jonah, would be to tell me a little bit about the work that you do and your organization.
1: Sure. Um, I run a company called Free Range, and um, we're a design and innovation company working for social change. And most of the work that we do is really about help, helping social change organizations figure out the the story that they're trying to tell and then figure out how to get that story out in the world. And that's both because, you know, to kind of get your message heard these days with all the noise out there, uh, you can't just communicate around ideas or facts and figures. You really got to speak to people's hearts. And and you know tell a compelling story that people feel they want to be a part of. If you want to enlist anybody in the social change, but also because we really believe that social change doesn't happen just because you raise a lot of money or pass some new laws or uh, change a couple of people's minds. But it happens when you really change culture and change the way that people see things. And that that happens when you start changing the way the stories that people share and the stories they tell themselves about who they are and what they value. In a way, stories have always been what has held tribes um, together, what held, what hold people together around shared values. So we think that it's really important for social change organizations and, and individuals to think about, you know, what stories are they challenging and what story, new stories are they trying to create? And so our organization does that, whether it's, you know, making videos like The Story of Stuff or The Matrix or helping uh, brands like ACLU or Greenpeace or uh, – you know, companies like Autodesk and Microsoft figure out their, their brand approach. Um, that's what we're doing out there.
0: It sounds great. I mean, how hard is it to find out the story that you, you know, you want to tell? What What's the challenge there?
1: So anyone can sort of start down the road of doing story-based communications and instantly, I think, get a lot of rewards, right? So instead of just talking about abstractions and big ideas, you start talking about what's happening in individual people's lives. You start coming down and, and focusing on uh, emotions as much as you are on facts, um, we start we really teach our clients through this empowerment marketing approach that uh, they make their audiences the heroes of the stories, as opposed to making themselves the heroes of the stories. So when you stop talking about how great you are and start talking about how great your audiences can be through a relationship with you, um, that really makes a, a, a significant change. So I think in a lot of ways, um, it's not difficult, uh, at least on the surface, to start changing the way that you communicate to be more story-based. Um, of course, you can take it as far as you could possibly want to go um, if you are trying to change some of the larger cultural stories that are out there. Um, you know That can be a life's work or even far more than that. But, but I think figuring out sort of what your purpose is, where you stand in the cultural conversation, and then how to um, really change from that sort of broadcast model of communication where you're just shouting at people what to do to uh, really entering a conversation with people. Um, that's stuff that anybody can get started on right away.
0: This idea of empowerment, which you talk about in your book, Story Wars, is clearly a very important idea for people to understand, for change makers, particularly. Can you just get to the kernel of what that's about?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Storytelling is really nothing new in communications and marketing. Obviously, storytelling is one of the oldest technologies we have. But even in advertising and marketing, we see storytelling starting, really starting up in the 1920s, 1930s, um on Madison Avenue. And one of the most famous, uh, original marketing stories was for Listerine. So Listerine was this product that nobody knew what to do with. Nobody, uh, it was a dental, uh, a pharm- pharmaceutical disinfectant. And, uh, they decided it might be good for bad breath, but nobody really realized that they had bad breath. It wasn't a problem that the public identified. So they made this advertisement called the Sad Edna Advertisement, or the um, Holy the Bridesmaid, which is about a, a young woman who uh, will never be married because she has bad breath. And instead of talking about the product itself, they showed this woman alone and jealous of her friends and said that basically this could be you too, and you'll never know if you have bad breath, but this product can cure it. And that's a sort of very basic inadequacy marketing approach. Basically telling people that uh, you're not good enough, you're not cool enough, you're not smart enough, you're not acceptable, and this brand will help you and save the day. And, you know, campaigns like the FedEdna campaign are kind of quaint and funny now, but that's still the sort of broadcast language of advertising that we're all used to. Um, you know, this brand can make your life easier. This brand can make you better. This brand can make you more beautiful. And um, instead of making people feel that they're sort of sufficient in their own for themselves, um, marketing like this makes people feel more and more anxious and more and more like they need to fill that anxiety with the right products and services. That's sort of how we communicate. And when we think even about social change campaigns, we often think about how do we make people feel anxious about the future and and um, angry or afraid, and then how do we say, just give us money and we'll solve it, even though we know we can't really solve it for them. And so... Um, what the alternative with empowerment marketing um is to really tell people that they have the power and agency in their own lives and we and, and we as a brand or an organization are there to help them. And when you think about it, you know, imagine uh, receiving that Listerine commercial when you're reading a magazine back in the nineteen twenties. You know, you don't have anyone to turn to and say, Hey, this is crazy. What the hell is this about? Um or you don't have they're not expecting you to pass that on to your friends. But now with advertising communications, we really need our, we need our audiences to be part of it with us. We need them to support our, our messages. So No one would really pass around to their Twitter feed, post on their Twitter feed that all their best friends have bad breath and they better watch out. That would ruin social capital. The kind of campaigns and communications that are working these days are those that people gladly want to share with their social networks and share with their communities and those are the ones that really tend to more um, support and uplift the human spirit um, and so you see brands really starting to think about how do we empower our audiences um, to do their best. And even Microsoft has recently changed their their home mission statement to being, uh, you know, empowering every individual and in organization on earth to achieve more. I think taking that, that servant stance to our audiences and appealing to their highest values um, is what can make for great communication these days. And that's what empowerment marketing is all about as opposed to inadequacy marketing.
0: Wow, it's very, uh, very interesting insight really and I can see very clearly what you mean particularly I, I guess with the kind of conventional products and so forth I mean it's interesting what you say about social change organisations as well and that idea that, you know, problem's terrible and, you know, we need your help and things like that I mean how deeply embedded is that kind of thinking would you say in charities, social change organisations, social entrepreneurship? Um, I
1: think it's pretty that is right? It's not just in the, um, in the communication, but it's often very much in the, um, in the model itself, because people go out and they, they do something amazing to change the world, and then they want to continue to do that, you know, a small group of people take great, great action, and they want to continue doing it, and to do that, they need to raise money. The simplest model, really, is to create a, a professional organization around, around the idea that goes out and asks as many people as possible for money so you can keep doing what you're doing, and um, you know that puts the audiences, the millions of people that you're interacting with, um, in a position of having really no role in your organization except to donate. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that because sometimes social change is made by a few experts uh, who just need the support of the public. But it's such a dominant sort of charity model that um, immediately when you do that, it's like the The people on the ground, the social change makers, are the heroes, and the only way to engage with them is to to donate. Um, We've been working with uh, Greenpeace on a global rebrand, and they came to us when they realized, you know, that model. uh, Even though they really are able to achieve amazing things as an organization, uh, the the problems that face the world are too big for any 3,500 people to solve. And they said, you know, this this way that we've been communicating. Uh, you know, we do things that you wouldn't dare do, so, so pay us. um is not working in the same way anymore. And so we help them really commit to being the brand that stands for for courage and a billion acts of courage around the world. And so they're starting to see everything that they do as really more of a, a role model for individuals to think, how can I be courageous in my own life? And that's that's sort of the shift that I'm talking about where, you know, we don't try to pretend that a couple people can solve a giant problem, we really think about how to enlist uh, the whole world in our work, and that everyone who who touches our our marketing um, becomes a better citizen. And uh, you know, one more thing I'll say about that is that we get about 3,500 commercial messages every single day, and if every one of those messages, including the social change messages we get, tell us that we suck and the world sucks, you know, we're gonna we're gonna believe that and feel that. If those 3,500 messages are constantly reminding us of our power as individuals um, and as communities, we're more likely to actually go out of our way to make a better world. So, changing that landscape of communication is kind of an important end in itself, I think.
0: That's fascinating. It's very, very interesting what you said in the example of Greenpeace. And I think I read somewhere, is it Chaldini or some of the, you know, people looking at persuasion or communication that by getting people, for example, to put a sticker in their window or something in their drive or something to make a small step to support an organization is a great way of building a relationship, just a small thing like that, because people then see themselves as supporters of that organization and become more involved.
1: hmm yeah, well, I mean, but we have, you know, we, we want people to kind of wear badges of the stories that they believe in so that they feel they're doing something. But, you know, even now, the technology really allows us to go so much further than we used to be able to in, in terms of that one way. So if here's something, you know, post it on your window or even on your Facebook feed, um, we now actually have the opportunity to listen to our audiences and engage in two way conversation with them. Um, and so I think that, that that's a great first step. And the best organizations and best companies out there are really recognizing the incredible value of the voice of their of their constituents and their audiences are learning how to listen and engage in real conversation with them. And uh, that gives them more chance to to become such a change makers themselves.
0: Can you give me some examples, maybe, or an example of how listening produces new insights, or maybe even new behaviors, an impact that maybe you wouldn't expect, or maybe that wouldn't arise from the the older kind of broadcast model?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's some sort of you know very obvious examples, and some you know a little bit a little bit less. But let me, let me talk about two. Um, You know, on the on the global obvious scale, you see how um campaigning organizations, for instance, like change.org and then, and then move on with follow suit not long after, uh, realize how powerful it is to, to not go out and make a bunch of campaigns and then force audiences into them, but really create that open platform so that any passionate individual can talk about what they care about and try to rally support around it. And so that's kind of do-it-yourself campaigning model, uh, that then brings the community when there starts to be enough energy to support around it, um, is one really powerful example of putting the action into the hands of the people on the ground who are doing the work, and I think it's a great one. You um, know, some work that I recently did with Autodesk. Um, you know, they make the software upon which the whole world is built. You know, whether it's architecture or invention, um, public works, and they wanted to, you know, have a position of sustainability. And we realized that, and through this kind of thinking that it's not really about what Autodesk is doing to be more sustainable. It's about what, uh, you know, calling designers everywhere to make awesome things and supporting those designers with software, with grants, um, with contests, and with ideas and, and principles about how to do sustainable design. So their social responsibility and um, sustainability platform is not really just about how much greenhouse gases are saving their operation. But really, how many people they can inspire to become more sustainable designers. And we're only able to do that by really opening up the walls and not just working with their brand team and their sustainability team, but, you know, bringing designers in from the field and asking them directly, you know, what are the hottest trends in sustainable design? What voices need to be amplified now? And, and using that big company as a, as a platform to amplify the best of what's going on out there, as opposed to just tooting their own horn about what they
0: intend to do. Translating that for a small social change organization that's got limited resources, trying to, you know, get a lot done in very complex environment. How can they do something here? I mean, this is, you know, potentially, I suppose, quite time consuming, listening to people and getting, you know, listening to stakeholders and, and so forth. How should one approach that?
1: Um, You know, I I think it's going to be very different for every, you know, depending on the context you're in. I think the first step is, um, you know, is to really think about what your relationship is um, to the outside world that goes beyond just, you know, here, these are the people that we're serving and these are the people that we're we're raising money from and figuring out how to create experiences um, for your audiences that truly engage them. So instead of, you know, I think it's very basic, like instead of, Seeing all of these people that you're outside of your organization as sort of chess pieces and resources, think of them, you know, as heroes in the making. And think about how your organization, your communications, and your business model are um, are actually creating deeper commitment in everyone that you touch to both understanding the issue, but but being part of it. And you know, it can be as it can be. You know, listening can be technology based, but it can be as simple as having you know taking the time. To go through that journey that let's say the supporter journey, um, really you know interviewing forty of your supporters, find out where along the way they felt they got satisfaction were able to live up their values through the relationship with you and where they felt thwarted, where they could have been more involved or more deeply pursued their values, and then just ask them you know what are what are your values, your highest values that you hold in the world and trying to ask how your organization to help them more deeply live those values out. So it's gonna be very different for every organization based on what you're trying to achieve. Um, but if you want to manage your brand or your organization like a story, recognize that uh you know at the heart of every story are core values. And these are values um, we use the sort of idea of Maslow's hierarchy. We think about the, the values that people most of make us human. You know, so what values do you stand for, like creativity, community <laughs> justice. And then, you know, if you want to manage your, your brand like a story, you, you build out from those values to say, well, every great story has a moral to it. So what is the moral of our story? What is that kind of core human truth that we stand for in the world and we think our audiences will stand for too? And um, you know, those two steps, I think, really help us get out of our own sort of four walls and into kind of more empathetic experience with our audiences. And just remember, you know, we didn't, we, we, we didn't grow our giant consumer economy just by talking about how great the next pair of shoes or the next hamburger is, we we grew that giant consumer society by intervening on the level of values, so that people express themselves and live their lives by the things that they consume, the brands that they use. Those marketers of the past era really figured out and invested in um, helping people form identities around the products that they buy. And I think social change organisations need to make the same investment, or else we'll be playing on the sidelines.
0: You do often see uh, people talking about some of the challenges that charities face in terms of, you know, I guess being donor centred or being aware of, you know, there can be a challenge or criticism that some aren't doing enough to be donor centric and really make them feel, you know, a central part of what's happening. I think you're talking about something deeper as well, there, aren't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean you can even just it just occurred to me that you can even think about, you know, your typical let's say you sit down to 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 do a typical website uh for a for a charity, you know, the, the basic navigation is probably gonna be, you know, um, you know, who we are, what we do, what we've accomplished, how you can help. And you know, you think about that and how how sort of egocentric an approach is that. Um, where sort of the the brand becomes, the organization becomes the center of the world, and the last thing is, you know, to help us do it. And, you know, what What if you really just, in that exercise, next time, you know, you think about, you're creating a new website, and you think about, how how do we flip that? So it's 90% about the person visiting the website and the people that we're helping, and only 10% about um, about us and what we've accomplished. And, you know, it can get uncomfortable, um, because then we feel like, wow, are we really... You know, are we counting our accomplishments enough? But I think if you can, if you flip that, uh, that's how you start getting evangelists and not just sort of reluctant supporters to your work. Right. And you go beyond
0: that. I can see how you could, they talk about this a lot. And it's the idea of talking about what's happening on the ground and talking about the the challenges and the great work that's being done. In terms of focusing on the person who might be going to support or work with the social change organization, how do you do that? I guess that's less. Evident in terms of how you design something that would be around them.
1: Here's another kind of quick example of something that we did not that long ago. Um, we we're working with the Rainforest Action Network, and they wanted to do a campaign, you know, a typical sort of brand busting campaign about the critical issue of unsustainable palm oil. Now, you know, palm oil is a big problem; it's goes into a lot of products, and um, we really, as consumers, can't just like boycott all those products. Because it's not—it's in everything, pretty much. It's in the processed food. Um, <clears throat> but we can try to get brands to make commitments to be more sustainable. And if they don't—they don't use sustainable palm oil—we're going to see the destruction of the Indonesian rainforest, the extinction of orangutans, and all that. So um, they either need to do a campaign, and they either need to appeal to the kind of uh, customers that these brands would really want to be listening to. And so that is um, not your typical forest activist. So instead of going out and creating a campaign, and specifically this video that we made um, about all the horrible things that are happening and how you need to sell five these products, which would have really kind of gotten people to tune out um, the people they were looking for, you know, the the more middle-of-the-road moms who are buying, you know, processed peanut butter and other products, we actually just changed the entire tone of that campaign. um, And we created a, a campaign that was really about love and about love for your children About love for the world, and we we did this kind of interesting story where a young girl, who's deaf gets a chance to sign to have a Skype conversation with an orangutan, with her mom with her, and skypes with an orangutan, and has this like wonderful—it's all kind of fake because orangutans can't really Skype this way—but has this (laughs) wonderful cute, cute conversation with with the orangutan, and then the orangutan informs her that you know the food that she's eating could be destroying her home, and then the mom and the daughter go to the supermarket and they demand change. And, you know, that, that video was viewed more than a million and a half times, um, where if we had just shown the dying orangutans pains and, and cut down for it, um, we would have, you know, just turned people off and not gotten that new level of person excited. But this is really an example of showing, Hey, you have the power to speak out and we're going to help. We're going to speak in your language, the language of love, not our language, the language of, you know, anger and fighting back. And, um, you know, that was able to, because we thought about our audiences and who they were and what kind of thing we could do that would make them feel empowered instead of feeling guilty, um, we got into all kinds of new, um, audience segments and that led to, you know, several of these major nice brands making commitments to change because it was a, it was much more respectful and, um, connected in front of campaign. So it's just, like, that's the kind of thing that this kind of thinking can lead
0: to. Very exciting. And it sounds like these ideas are becoming more prevalent, that more organizations are, are realizing the potential of this today.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating time to be in this space because everybody realizes that the old way is broken. You know, we, we've all been raised uh, as communicators and as uh, organizers in the more or less the broadcast uh yeah I guess now now some people are coming to the who have always had the internet, but for the most part, people who are sort of setting strategies still are copying a lot of the old ways of doing things, and the context has completely changed and so there's a lot of um desire and hope out there that things can be done differently, and I think that this kind of approach is filling that gap um you know, some some people are obviously there there are many models of doing this, but I think some of the basic transformations that I'm talking about are kind of inevitable for what we'll we'll see continuing to grow over the next few years. Even since I wrote the book in 2012, um, you know, I think that this is, when I was writing the book, I was having to kind of really dig deep to find the examples. And now they seem to be kind of more falling off the trees and not to say that the book is responsible for, for all those things happening, but I think that I I was, I saw what was coming uh, before I, before so it was fully here, and, and it just kind of fits if you just look at the at the uh, the trends of where we're going in society.
0: It's fascinating, as you say, to, to be in the middle of this change. And and of course, I guess social change organisations as well have great stories to tell. I mean, conventional companies and so forth, those that are moving more towards sustainability or their values is, is, is certainly one thing. But, you know, people who are working on the ground, dealing with very you know challenging issues and are totally dedicated to social change and so forth, they clearly have great stories to tell. And it's really important that they, they get those stories out there. And particularly, as you say, in today's kind of media space where... The saturation. It's just very difficult to get space and people's attention, I suppose.
1: It was that thought that actually got me to start this company to begin with when I was like thinking that, you know, we it wouldn't just be about money that would say who got to who got to share their ideas. It would really be about what people wanted to share. Um, you know, you put something out to the world and it's just interesting, it gets passed around, and it's not it diet. And I thought, you know, this is nineteen ninety nine and I thought, you know, people are gonna be more likely to pass around the message that really connects to their deepest values, than to pass around a message about a new deodorant that came out. And we're so used to thinking, you know, that de- the deodorant companies or the hamburger companies or the sneaker companies have this enormous advantage over social change organizations because they have the money. But in a world where money becomes less important um, than the value of the message, um, I think it's really important that social change organizations realize that they actually have the advantage, you know, one very important natural advantage and uh, not set off for best.
0: Excellent. Well, i just one other question, which I'm going to move earlier on to, to the program. And it's just to, I guess, ask the question of these empowerment messages are wonderful and powerful. But what is the evidence that they're not just going to show another video of a lion and a dog playing or, you know, those kind of animal videos that touch people and make them, you know, laugh and so forth, these viral sensations. How do you compete with that? Look, We're
1: never going to be able to create the number you know, go into a viral video campaign, for instance, and make the number one video on the internet guaranteed. Um, And the, you know, the reaction to highly funny, silly, frivolous stuff is always going to be important to people. And they're going to have that space. Um, But I think what's, what's important is that we can go into this process. Well, first I'll say that, you know, you can learn a lot from what is popular, right? Like if those videos are created purely for people's pleasure and, most nonprofit videos are created purely um, for the opposite, right? How often do you put out a video that's just meant to make people feel good? Um, usually trying to make them feel bad, so they'll donate. So there's a, there's a lesson to be learned from the cat videos out there to begin with, that you have to buy your audience's attention. You have to give them something before asking for something. But I think also that, um, you know, we see these videos, some brand videos, they'll go hugely, hugely viral. Um, but if they're not creating a uh, something deeper, if they're not strategically based and giving people a sense of what the organization how the organization is different and what really this is about, you're getting you're getting views, but you're not getting kind of uh, evangelists and fans. And you know, I've I've had I've had projects where we've reached twenty million viewers on a video, but it wasn't really the, the, the client never really took the time to think about well how is this aligned to our larger mission. They just want to get something out. And it doesn't really do that much. So I wouldn't count success in terms of just how many people you can get to watch a video that you create. I count success in, you know, for the people who do watch it, and hopefully that'll number in the hundreds of thousands, not just in the hundreds, but people who do see it, are you giving them a new story? Are you giving them a, a new way of seeing the world? I think something that was really, I don't count the success of story. It's tough based on, you know, the, the view count that it got. Although That view count was, was great, you know, in the, probably 45 million or so, but... But I really count it in terms of how people kind of had an aha moment and said, wow, I see the world differently. I understand my role in it differently because of this experience. And so it's really that combination. How do you give them a great story that's interesting? How do you keep it on the sort of the ground level? How do you not make them feel bad? But then also, you know, instead of going for viral, let's really go for a strategic mind shift that we're trying to create in people. And that's where, you know, the real win happens.
0: Jonah, thank you so much for your time and sharing your insights and the great work that you're doing. And I wish you the very best in your continued success. Thank you, Turtle. Thanks for the time. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.